Would you bow with me once more and let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the incredible story of Joshua and the Exodus that we have been looking at these past months. And I pray, Lord, now that as we look at this final chapter of Joshua's life, I pray that once more you would open your word to us by your spirit, that the, the word you would have for us today, the challenge you would have for us today, that you would give us open hearts to receive it, and that, Father, that through this word, you would convict our hearts in how we live for you and what sort of a legacy we will leave behind us. pray that these words would be yours in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've come now to the conclusion of our series in Joshua, we've arrived finally at Joshua's death. 110 years is a long time to live, but people still live to that age uh, even today. It's a long time. Uh, and yet, as, as Reuben said, you know, 85 to 110, those were some of the prime years of Joshua's life because that was during the years of the conquering was obviously once he was well advanced in years. And so it's incredible to think about, and yet he still came to the end. And so as we consider his remarkable life, how would you uh, summarize a life like that? What would Joshua's epitaph be? What would be that one crisp statement that you would put on Joshua's tombstone. Now, the fact is that there have been literally billions of people who have lived on planet Earth since Joshua walked this planet, and many of them have had their lives summarized by a single epitaph on their tombstone. So let me just share with you a few examples this morning. Now, this first one, if you have been looking at it already, is uh, it looks like a Pac-Man video game, but that's actually a tombstone. This is the tombstone for a young man named Michael Luther, and he was absolutely addicted to arcade video games. And so when he passed away in 2007, his sister designed this tombstone to look like a Pac-Man arcade game, and if you look closely at the middle, it simply says, game over. Anyone notice that? So that's one tombstone. The next one is much more simple. It's, it's the tombstone of the famous game show host, Merv Griffin. You may recognize him as the creator uh, and host of Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy, those great institutions of late afternoon primetime TV. So on his tombstone, if you're squinting to try to read it, it says, I will not be right back after these messages. So a little bit of humor there are his final parting words to the world. The next slide is from someone not famous, but she was known as Aunt Kay. And uh, her parting legacy to the world was her secret fudge recipe, which the instructions are there on her tombstone. Everyone apparently was asking her her entire life it was secret, but she put it on her tombstone. Now, while these epitaphs are humorous, I also find them somewhat sad. For of what enduring value is to be remembered for loving video games, or even creating a game show or two, or making the best fudge? A much more profound and powerful epitaph, I find, is, is John Newton's, the author of the beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. In, his, in this next slide, you'll see his tombstone. It's a little bit difficult to read. I'll just share for you what his ep epitaph reads. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith 
he had long labored to destroy. What a powerful epitaph of a life. So how about you? Once your allotted days in this world, in this life, are over, what will your epitaph say? How will it read? Will you have a say in that? Will you tell people what you want on your tombstone? Or if it was up to them, what do you think they would write? What kind of a legacy will you leave behind once you are gone? You see, we all know how this works. We've all been to funerals before. We've all lost loved ones. We know that when someone passes on, when someone dies, it becomes very quickly apparent what their priorities were when they were alive. Mourners, of course, will gather around and talk about, you know, the, the things that the departed loved one loved to do, whether they loved to hunt or fish or farm or garden or what their favorite team was. They'll talk about her, her smile, her generosity, her sense of humor, her love for her family. And these are the types of things that we will reminisce about. And of course, there's nothing wrong with talking about these things, someone's hobbies or interests, the type of person or character that they were. But for the Christian, our love for the Lord Jesus and our service to him should have a prominent place in the conversation as well. Our lives ought to be marked by our love for and our service to Jesus. And not as just a one-time thing either. You know that, well, once upon a time, you know, I said a prayer or was baptized. But instead that loving and serving Jesus was the ongoing theme and the ongoing passion of my life. For if you and I live our lives in this way, then the legacy that we leave behind will point others to faith in God even long after we're gone. And this is exactly the kind of life that Joshua lived. And so I'll ask you again, how would you try to summarize such an incredible life as Joshua's into just one crisp statement? What would you put as his epitaph? For consider Joshua's remarkable life, just the highlights. Born in Egypt as a slave, was an eyewitness to the ten plagues of Egypt, walked through the Red Sea on dry land, spied out Canaan and gave a faithful report, was Moses' personal assistant, experienced God's glory firsthand on Mount Sinai, was handpicked by God to secede Moses as leader of Israel, led God's people across the Jordan River into the Promised Land, met the commander of the Lord's army, none other than the pre-incarnate Christ, led Israel's army to victory in the Battle of Jericho and dozens upon dozens of more battles to follow, including over the giant Anakites. And he once even commanded the sun to stand still in the sky, and it did. And that's just, again, a few of the highlights of Joshua's absolutely remarkable life. So for a man like that, with a highlight reel like that, how do you even begin to summarize a life like that? Well, thankfully, we don't have to. God's word has already done that for us. Joshua chapter 24, verse 29. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. Did you catch the epitaph? It's buried right in the middle there, just a crisp little sentence. Let me read it for you again. And it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord died. 
There it is. Joshua, the servant of the Lord. What a perfectly concise summary of Joshua's life from beginning to end. The servant of the Lord. You know, the word of God tells us that Joshua served the Lord all the days of his life and was faithful right up until his death at 110 years of age. You know, so many people serve the Lord and then at some point turn away from him. Some will serve him when it is, you know, convenient to do so for them for a season, but then they fall away. Some seem to be on this never-ending cycle of turning to the Lord and then turning away from the Lord and then turning back to the Lord and then turning away from the Lord. And we see that pattern in Israel's long and storied history. But in order to leave a lasting legacy, an enduring legacy, we must be faithful servants of God for the long haul. When we're young, when we're middle-aged, and when we're old. When times are good and when times are bad. When the Lord seems near and when the Lord seems distant. You see, God desires, he blesses, and he rewards our faithful, enduring service to him. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, Jesus told the parable of the talents. And the parable goes that there's a wealthy man who goes away on a long journey, and he entrusts his property to three servants. To the first servant, he entrusts five talents, to the second, two, and to the third, one. After a long absence, the wealthy man returns and discovers that the first two servants have both doubled the money that he had entrusted to them. And to both of those servants, he gives this beautiful commendation. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." But sadly, the third servant only returned that single talent without gaining any increase during his master's long absence. To which the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. Now, which type of servant was Joshua? Clearly, he was not like that third servant, was he? No, Joshua was like that five-talent servant. God had entrusted him with a lot. I mean a lot. There there are very few men through the pages of Scripture. Moses would be one of the only ones that you would say God entrusted with more. But God entrusted Joshua with a lot. The conquering of Canaan, the setting up of the boundaries of the nation. There was a lot that God entrusted to Joshua. And yet, at the end of his life, we can see that Joshua was like that five-talent servant. God entrusted him with it, but he did what God had asked him to do. He was faithful to the very end. He maximized that position that God had given him. He served him wholeheartedly, earning that simple yet beautiful commendation, Joshua, the servant of the Lord. So how about you? How about me? Could that commendation, that that beautiful yet simple word, servant of God, be your epitaph or mine? Are we living the Christian life wholeheartedly? And when I say that, I don't mean perfectly, but Are we living the Christian life with dedication, with purpose, with perseverance? Are we living it in such a way as to anticipate meeting our Lord and Master Jesus Christ personally? Are we anticipating him saying those words to us? Well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus' teaching makes it clear that covered by the grace of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we should be striving 
to faithfully live out our lives in such a way that like Joshua, our epitaph could read, the servant of the Lord. I want you to listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. My friends, listen, you may accomplish a lot of things in this life, and maybe you've accomplished a lot of things already. You know, you may have won trophies or awards. You may have traveled to many countries. You could have traveled to every continent and even climbed mountains. You may have a great reputation and be very popular. You may have attained a great amount of wealth or have all of the toys and luxuries that you can think of. You may have a a happy home and a great marriage and successful children. But if the labor was not in the Lord and not for the Lord, it was all in vain. But if you give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, if you labor faithfully at the work that God has entrusted to you, then listen to this, it is never, ever in vain. Even if the world looks at it and says, you know what, you haven't accomplished anything. It doesn't impress us what you've done with your life. Even if the world says that, it doesn't matter. Because it's God's viewpoint that matters, and it's his praise, and it's his eternal reward that we are living for. We're living for what God says at the end of our life, not what the world says. The things that we accomplish in the Lord, for the Lord, that is what will endure. What we do in this world, no matter how many mountains we climbed or awards we won, it will all fade away. It will all just perish and be forgotten with us. It's only what we do in the Lord, for the Lord, that will endure. So let's move on and consider just for a moment our mortality. We've been alluding to it this whole time. We know that from the moment we're born, this world we live in, our our cells are beginning to die. Yes, they're regenerating constantly, but they're aging. That's why wrinkles appear. That's why things slow down. We're dying. And Joshua's inevitable death comes. Verse 29, it came to pass after these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. Now, Joshua did live a remarkable life as we've looked at. But the day still came, he breathed that last breath, and his spirit left his body. He died, and he was gone. A lady named Jean Kelmert outlived Joshua remarkably to 120 years of age. At that time, she was the oldest living human whose birth date could be authenticated, 120 years old. And at that age, when she was asked to describe her vision for the future, she had replied, very brief. (laughs) Then when the reporter asked her what she liked best about being so old, she answered wryly, well, there's no peer pressure. You can tell she kept her sense of humor. At 110 years of age, Joshua could have said all those same things, no peer pressure. And regardless of his faithfulness to the Lord, all of the great things he accomplished, Joshua still ended up in the ground. My friends, there's nothing that you and I can do to change that fact, that unless the Lord returns first, the same will happen to us. Death is coming. We will end up in the ground. 
It's a sobering fact. And this truth should motivate us to work while there is time. The psalmist writes, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, every farmer knows that there are a limited number of days of harvest that we are given before snow sets in, before winter sets in, and we can't harvest anymore. And I realize that that analogy is becoming painfully real for a lot of you, right? Because every rain day cuts into that number of harvesting days, right? And we know winter is coming. It's an inevitable fact. In Manitoba, winter comes, snow will come, and there will be a point where we can no longer harvest. And so, knowing that, I want you to just imagine in your mind's eye, this next week, let's say it's glorious, it's sunny, it's hot, it's beautiful, everything's dry, everything's just ready to harvest, but you come into town and you discover that all of the farmers are lounging in the coffee shop. And others of them are out shooting a round of golf on the golf course. Some are down at the lake fishing. You know, others are just puttering around town, not really doing anything in particular. And it's dry. I mean, it's, it's ready to go. And the crops are sitting in the field. Can you imagine that? All the farmers not harvesting. No, we can't even begin to fathom that, right? You're getting, the farmers here are getting anxious just thinking about that, right? You're like, ugh. <laughs> like, I'm going. There's no one going to stop me. I am never going to sit still while... It's dry and there are crops sitting in the field unharvested. We can't imagine it. Well, the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 35, that in the same way spiritually, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. The clock of each of our lives is always ticking and it never stops. Eternity is coming for us all and how many around us are still not ready to meet the Lord. I say this as much as a reminder to myself as it is for you. None of us know how many days we have left. But what we do know is that each day that we live, each one that God grants us, is one more day that we have to serve our Lord. Time is a treasure, so invest it wisely. Now this speaks to the importance of priorities in our lives. When this life is over, our material possessions won't matter. Our bank accounts, our retirement and investment portfolios won't matter. Our social standing and our reputations will not matter either. What matters is what we send ahead of us. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust corrupt, and where thieves do not break in nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now this leads us to the final aspect of Joshua's life that I would like us to consider. Joshua's enduring legacy. Verse 31. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. And so here we see that Israel followed the Lord during the lifetime of Joshua and the next generation that lived after his death. They too continued in the ways of the Lord during their lifetimes. Now, as a leader, and more importantly, as a servant of God, it's an encouraging thought for me that simply being faithful to God's call on my life, my legacy could last far beyond my time on earth. And this testimony concerning Joshua showed that his labor 
was not in vain. And it also shows the impact that he had for the Lord and the impact that he had on others, which lasted long beyond his death. Now, the only sure way to do this, I believe, the only sure way to do this is, of course, first, being faithful to what God has called us to do. And the second is by intentionally investing in evangelizing and discipling the next generation that comes behind us, intentionally evangelizing and discipling them to follow the Lord. We see Joshua does just that. We look earlier in Joshua chapter 24 and we see Joshua doing that. He gathers that next generation, all of his children and his children's children. There's already two generations that, have, that are living while Joshua at 110 years of age. And he gathers them all together for his final parting words to the nation. And we know that famous verse where he challenges them to choose this day whom you will serve. And he challenges them to throw away those pagan idols that some of them were still holding on to. And he says to them, choose as I and my house will choose to worship and serve the Lord only. And clearly that generation took that message to heart and they did just that. However, every generation must relearn to prioritize passing on their faith to the next. It doesn't happen automatically. Every generation must own that. To say, it's my job in my generation to pass our faith along to the next. Because if one generation says, you know what? That's not my job. It's not a big deal. We don't need to do that. We have the faith. What happens? The chain is broken. And it's incredible how quickly when that chain is broken, the next generation can fall away from the Lord. And this is where the generation that followed Joshua failed. We flip ahead one book of the Bible to Judges chapter 2. And in Judges chapter 2 and verses 10 to 12, it gives a summary of Joshua's death and it gets into the beginnings of the nation, and then it tells us this. After that whole generation, referring to the one that followed Joshua, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook, forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them up out of Egypt, they followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. Now, this is one of the saddest statements in the Bible, I, I find. It's just tragic to think that one generation later, they've forsaken the Lord and they're worshipping these pagan gods, they're worshipping Baal, and they're just completely forgotten about God. And it just always begs the question for me, how did this happen? I mean, like, like logistically, how does this happen? How does a generation who lived the conquest fail to pass this along to the next generation? How did this happen? Well, the Bible doesn't directly tell us all of the details, but we know a large factor was that they hadn't fully purged the Canaanites and their idols from the land as God had commanded. So that's one of the things we see as a common thread when they failed to completely eradicate the, the, the Canaanites and the influences around them, those lingered, and so those were a factor. And I suspect that another large factor was that finally being at peace, after years of war, after years in the wilderness, after finally being at peace, the generation that lived the conquest was incredibly busy and incredibly content to finally be settling their promised land. 
to finally be doing the things they dreamt of since childhood, building their homes, cultivating their fields, you know, planting those vineyards, building up those towns. I don't for one second believe that they failed to pass on the faith intentionally. It wasn't by design that they didn't do this. I believe it was by neglect. I believe it was because they were so busy with finally doing the things they had dreamt of doing, building up their land, that they simply took it for granted that the next generation would live out the faith as well. There's a story that I've shared before of a troubled young man who was standing before a judge waiting to be sentenced for his crimes. And the judge had known this young man from childhood, for he was well acquainted with his father. His father was a famous legal scholar and the author of an exhaustive study entitled The Law of Trusts. The Law of Trusts was a lifetime work, a masterpiece in the law, in the law and, and field of law. So the judge looked at this young man and trying to, to get at what could have possibly made this young man go off the rails so badly with having such a great father, he asked him the question, Do you remember your father? I remember him well, your honor, came the reply. Trying to probe the young man's conscience further, the judge said, As you are about to be sentenced, as you think about your wonderful father, what do you remember most clearly about him? Well, there was a long pause. Then the judge received an answer that he had not at all expected. I remember when I went to him for advice. He looked up at me from the book he was writing and said, Run along, boy. I'm busy. When I went to him for companionship, he turned me away and said, Run along, son. This book won't finish itself. Your Honor, you remember him as a great lawyer. I remember him as a lost friend. And the judge muttered to himself, Alas, he finished the book, but lost the boy. You know, we can be involved in a lot of good things in this life, noble things even, but if we desire to pass along our faith to our own children and to the next generation, we must intentionally invest our time in them as well. Teaching, disciplining, loving. And when we do, we will have a personal impact. You know, there are people who have invested in me throughout my life, and I suspect that many of them will never know what a personal impact they had on me. They may not even think that I had an impact on Danny Greening's life, but I know that they did, and most importantly, God knows that they did. In fact, you can have a personal impact on your spouse, your children, your siblings, your parents, your classmates, your friends, co-workers, you can have an impact even on complete strangers. Just think of Billy Graham and the influence that he has had on this world, and more importantly, on the kingdom of Christ, preaching the gospel to more people on planet Earth than any single man has ever done before or since. have heard Billy Graham preach the gospel. There's no way to measure the, the impact of that. And so, of course, we say, and I say, well, I'll never influence or reach as many people as Billy Graham. And of course, that's true, but you never know how far your influence may reach. Because while everyone has heard of Billy Graham, very few people have heard of Mordecai Ham. It's a funny name, Mordecai Ham. But if you've heard of Billy Graham, you've heard of Mordecai Ham. Because without him, 
You would have never heard of Billy Graham because it was at a Mordecai Ham crusade where he preached a simple gospel message that a very young man, Billy Graham, gave his life to Christ. So where would the message be if it had not been for Mordecai Ham, unknown except for that single crusade where a young man gave his life to the Lord? And so let me ask you, what kind of impact are you having? What kind of legacy will you leave behind for the next generation? It may not look big and grand right now to you, but God sees the details and the ripple effects of your faithful service. And so maybe the Holy Spirit has revealed to you right now that you're not fully serving the Lord in the way that he desires for you. You're not making the most of the time that he has given you. And if you're feeling any conviction that way at all, I have good news for you. We have time. We have today. We have every day that God gives us to begin making that right. Begin reprioritizing our lives towards things that will matter for eternity. And we can start by making that change right now, this very moment. For with God's help, it's never too late to begin serving wholeheartedly and leave a lasting legacy. In the year 1867, Swedish chemist by the name of Alfred Nobel invented a new high explosive. Many of you will have heard this story before. This high explosive, one that we all take for granted today, TNT, dynamite. And he was convinced that his invention was so terrible and so destructive that it would make war too horrible to ever happen again. However, he quickly discovered that he was wrong. There was no shortage of buyers for his new explosives. Immediately, generals and commanders began implementing it in their arsenal of destructive capabilities. And so he made a huge fortune from its sales, yet was horrified with the suffering and misery it caused in wars and conflicts to follow. But what was he to do? Towards the end of the 19th century, he awoke one morning to read his own obituary in the local paper. It said, Alfred Noble, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in war than ever before. He died a very rich man. Well, they had made a mistake. It was actually Alfred's older brother who had died. A newspaper reporter had confused the epitaph. But the account shook Alfred to his core. It had a profound impact on him. He couldn't shake it. That his legacy would be a man who had invented a more efficient way to kill people. And he decided that wasn't why or how he wanted to be remembered. He wanted to be known for something other than developing a means to kill people more efficiently and for amassing a fortune in the process. And so as a result, he initiated the Nobel Peace Prize, an award for scientists and writers who fostered peace. Noble said, Every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. We have that opportunity. As we look at God's word, as we look at what he calls us to do, to do faithfully, Whatever he's entrusted you with, what we are called to is to do it faithfully. For to whom God has entrusted something, that is all that he asks of his servants, is to prove faithful to the very end. We have that opportunity today. And if, and if you're not being faithful with what God has entrusted you right now today, like Alfred Noble, we have the opportunity midstream to say, you know what, I'm going to begin changing that even right now today. So in closing, let me ask once more, what will your epitaph say? 
My hope is that every last one of our tombstones could one day read just like Joshua's, nothing fancy, but simply the profound statement, servant of God. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as your children who have come to you through faith in Jesus Christ, who have received your incredible mercy and grace, you have given to each one of us a trust, an area of influence where you have asked us to serve. Lord, for some of us, it looks big and grand where we, we've been asked to, to influence many people. And we think of someone like Billy Graham who influenced tens of thousands. And yet, Lord, you don't measure greatness by the size. You measure, Lord, each each servant individually by what you have asked them to do. Just like you asked Mordecai Ham to be faithful with his small tent meetings where one young man came to faith. No one else would remember his name except for the fact that Billy Graham came to faith there. And so, Father, for many of us, we consider that our our legacy won't be sung or or remembered by the world as, as a whole. And yet, Lord, because we are faithful to you, eternity will remember. People will sing of your glory and greatness because one servant like Joshua was faithful and heaven will reveal the glory of that. And so, Father, I pray that like Joshua, we would seek nothing more with our lives than to be a faithful servant. Whatever you've entrusted us with, help us to be diligent about it. Help us to not be like that lazy servant who, when the crops are in the field, decided to go do something else instead. But help us to be diligent with what you've asked us to do because we know that the time is short. Help us to make the most of the time you've entrusted to each one of us, that more would come to salvation, that the legacy of our faith would be passed along to the next generation, and the next and the next until you return, for this is your design. We, we give you all glory and praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.